we are continuing our series. Uh, it's called Ancient Cliff Notes. It's a series we've been on for a while, and I'm really excited about it because really I think it's a series we'll be able to take for a, a, a decent amount of time and then even come back to. Uh, in, in a couple of weeks, we're starting our missions uh, season, so we're going to have three weeks on mission, and then we'll probably come right back to Ancient Cliff Notes after that. Uh, and what we're doing in this series is we're going uh, through some old stories in the Old Testament, some of the you know, ancient stories in the, in the Bible, in the entire world, really, and we're asking these questions. What happened then? What does it mean for us now, today, in our modern world? And how does it point to Jesus? That's our objective in this series, to make ancient stories applicable to our modern lives. And to point us to our everlasting Savior, Jesus Christ. And today's story, I'm going to tell you right now, it is certainly no exception. This, today's sermon is going to be a loaded one. I'm very, very excited. And it is the story of Ruth. Now, the book of Ruth is a very short four-chapter book in the Old Testament. Uh, it's immediately following the book of Judges. It takes place during the time of Judges. So it would be in the same time period of the first four sermons that we did. Uh, Samuel, Saul, Samson, and then Judges 17 and 18 all took place at the same time period, relatively. And what I'm going to do today kind of before I read the passage from the Bible, I'm going to read a passage in a minute that you all probably have heard. You're probably very familiar with this passage. It's a very famous passage, and hopefully by the end of today, you're going to understand even more how powerful it is what Ruth says to Naomi in this, in this moment. Uh, but before, before reading that, I'm going to frame that for you. I'm going to kind of build up to what's going on in that day and in this family before that, and then we're going to plow through it after that. So the story of Ruth begins with a woman named Naomi. And really, the, the, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth, really is the story of Naomi in a lot of ways, as you will, as you will see. Naomi is from Israel, and she, she lives in Israel, she's married, and, but her and her husband escaped Israel. They escaped, a, there's a famine in Israel, so they escaped to a place called Moab, okay? So she's from Israel, married, they have two sons, they're in Moab now, okay? Then, basically, the first five verses of Ruth basically is the Cliff Notes version of what happens then. In the, in, in the course of ten years, it is described in five verses, and it says that Naomi's husband dies, both of Naomi's sons marry Moabite women, uh, one's name is Orpah, one's name is Ruth, and then both of her sons die. So Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah are all now widows. Now, this is bad news for everyone, but it's especially bad for Naomi because Naomi was much older in age. She didn't have parents anymore, so there was nobody to go home to. She was much older, so she was a lot less likely to get remarried, which is very hard. And then she had nobody to pass on anything to or nobody to take care of her, no children, because her two sons had died. So, all that she has are these two daughters-in-law. Uh, so she was the most vulnerable type of widow, which is really the most vulnerable type of person in that society. There was no care, okay, from any direction. But she has these two daughters-in-law. She has Orpah and she has Ruth. And they both recognize, wow, my gosh, she's lost everything. We've lost a lot, but she's lost it all. And so they commit to her. They say, Naomi, we're going to stay with you. We'll be to you what you're uh, what our husbands were to you. To, we'll be children to you. We'll take care of you. But she basically tells them, you guys are young. Go back to your homeland. Go back to Moab. Find new husbands. Get married. Do not waste your whole lives on an old woman like me. It's basically what she says to them. She gives them permission to leave. And so at that, Orpah, the Bible says, kisses Naomi and she leaves. But the Bible says that Ruth 
clings to her. She stays with her. And this is where we're going to pick up on our reading. In Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. And Naomi tells Ruth this. She says, Naomi tells Ruth, she says, do what Orpah did. Get out of here. You don't want to be here. You don't want to stay with me. Just do what she did. But Naomi insists, uh, Ruth insists. And so Naomi finally, when she realizes, okay, uh, Ruth is not going anywhere. Um, or she, she, she tells, she says, you need to go, you need to go, you need to go. And then this is what Ruth says to convince Naomi, hey, I'm not going anywhere. Ruth said this, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where, I, where you die, I will die. And, there, will be, and I will be, there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into what happens on the other side of that, which is loaded. Jesus, uh, thank you, Father God, for being in this place today. Father God, thank you for that you've given us the ability to gather in your name and to make much of you, Jesus, and to uh, just come together so that we can do more for you as a body in this community that just needs your love so much, Father God. We just pray that we'll be your vessels, God, that we wouldn't just learn a bunch of information, but Lord, it would transform us to be a transformation to our community, God. And Lord, as I studied this passage this week, I just kind of got to this place where I'm like, all right, we're going to do it again, God. We're going to dive into something so deep and something so loaded and something so beautiful, but something that people sometimes don't always understand, God. And I pray you'll give me clarity to communicate this, Lord. You'll give grace to me, Father God, and give grace to, that everybody would have grace as we navigate it and that your presence would be here, Holy Spirit, that every single thing that you would have me to say in this message, that only that would be said and let everything else fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth. We love you so much and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Now, if you were to open up a commentary uh, or, or, or read something from a rabbi or something about the book of Ruth, you were trying to go online and Google, you do research, why on earth does this book exist? You were to ask, why is it that a short story about a woman whose husband dies, whose children, whose sons die, and then whose two daughter-in-laws stay with her, well, one really stays with her, why would that make it into the Bible? Why would they decide to write this and put it in the Bible all these years later? There's a list of different kind of ideas as to what the reason for it could be, but there are two really that stand out above the rest. Above the rest. One answer that the rabbis give it's a very short answer, and it is, they would simply say, kased. This is the word that we studied kind of in depth last week when we did Hosea. Kased. It means that God is abounding in steadfast love. And the idea is that this book was written, and it was included in the scriptures to teach us how great the reward is for people who also emulate that love, who live that love, that that loving kindness, that steadfast love. Now, if, if you remember the imagery for the word kased, uh, we talked about it last week, it's the picture of it is it's the picture of a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers uh, to a great discomfort to herself, right? She discomforts herself and lines her nest with the feathers so that her young may rest comfortably on it. That's kased. That's kind of the image you get for kased. The, the, the mother giving herself discomfort so that what she loves will be comfortable. Our daughter Fiona, uh, my, my, my parents, today's my dad's birthday, so tell him happy birthday. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
last Sunday, uh, we had a birthday party for Fiona. Uh, she's our five-year-old. My parents gave her this baby doll, and she adores this baby doll. She thinks this is just the greatest thing in the world. And I remember we put all the kids to bed on Sunday night. And then we went back to check on them several hours later, and Fiona was sleeping on the floor. And the baby was sleeping on her bed with her head on the pillow. And, and, and that's, to me, and I think about that, I'm like, that's a five-year-old understanding cassette. And it's amazing how this motherly inclination, this loving kindness can exist even in a five-year-old. But that's exactly what cassette is. It is steadfast love. It is giving up your own comfort for the sake of something that means a lot to you. And this story, from front to back, as we're going to see, is a story of God's faithfulness toward a family that really should have been forgotten. So that's kind of the first answer that the rabbis give as to what this book is for and what the purpose of it is and why it still exists today. And we're going to spend really the rest of the service today working toward the second answer. And it's, it's really, really incredible. But in order to start this, we need to go all the way back to the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. There was a huge rivalry that's recorded in Numbers 22 through 25 between Israel and, and Balak, who is the king of Moab. So Israel had just come out of Egypt. They're looking for the promised land. They encounter this army, and they have this, this great feud. And uh, Balak realizes, I can't overpower Israel because there's so many of them. So what he does to try to attack Israel is he hires somebody named Balaam to put a curse on Israel. And they took these things very seriously back then. The curses, that was a big deal. So God, uh, so Balak hires Balaam to put a curse on Israel, but God tells Balaam, you can't curse them. They're already blessed. They are my people. You, don't you dare curse them. So Balaam tells Balak, he says, I can't go with you. Balak's like, oh, you're coming with me. You're coming and you're going to curse them. So Balaam's like, all right, puts his hands in the air. He goes with, with Balak and with the Moabites. And then so he gets there. Uh, he gets to where they're going and he opens his mouth to put a curse on Israel, but he puts a blessing on them instead can't curse them. And Balak, he's like getting ticked off. He's like, what are you doing? Like, you're I said, curse them. I paid you to curse them. And Balak's like, I told you, you don't want me to come with you. I can't curse them. He's like, do it again. Curse them. He opens his mouth. He blesses them again. Do it again. Are you sure about this? Like, yes. Opens his mouth a third time. And he blesses Israel again. He's unable to curse Israel. Okay? Then Balak Who's, he's from Moab. He's the king of Moab. He's so frustrated with this, and he's trying to figure out how do we attack Israel? How do we weaken them? So what he does is he comes up with this plan of instead of cursing them, because now they're blessed, he, he gathers all the Moabite women, and he says, this is how we're going to, um, this is how we're going to weaken the Israelite armies. We are going to seduce them. So what he does is he has the Moabite women seduce these ar- the, the Israelite army, and then after he, they seduce them, they, they invite them to make sacrifices to other gods, other than, you know, not to, not to God. And it's in, in Numbers 25, uh, 1 through 3, it, it, it talks about how what happens is because these Moabite women had seduced this army, the Israelites, the way that it puts it is it says that they yoked themselves with another god, with Baal, rather than the god of Israel. And so kind of in that moment, in a similar fashion, in the way that Moses, we talked about last week, how Moses, he comes down from Mount Sinai, he's really mad because of what Israel's doing and how they're acting. So what he does is he smashes the Ten Commandments because he's so mad, and then God has to kind of redo that. Watch that if you didn't see it. 
So it's kind of a similar situation to that. Moses sees this, and in his anger, he writes this down, these words that are recorded in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. And then we'll go to 4, 5, and 6. This is what it says. It says, No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the tenth generation. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. So not to the tenth generation and not forever. Okay? These people are never going to be welcomed by God. That's verse 4. Uh, that's verse 3. Then in verse 4, 5, and 6, uh, he explains the reasoning, which we already explained, but I'll read it again. But hold this in your mind. Okay? 4, 5, and 6 says this. This is the reason. Because they did not meet with you uh, with bread and with water on the way when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor from Pether of Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia to curse you. But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because God loves you. Because God loves you. And he will not let your enemies curse you. You shall not, but then he says this about Moab. He says, you shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all the days of your life forever. So because the Moabites hired this guy Balaam to speak a curse against them, even though this curse did not work, Moses is so angry about this and about everything that transpired after this that he writes down this passage and it ends up making it into the Bible that says that no Moabite or any descendant of them will ever be accepted. And I have to tell you that most people, even though we don't even read this passage because it's in Deuteronomy and most of us don't like to read Deuteronomy, uh, if we do read it, we're probably just going to skim right by it. Quite frankly, if you actually read it, it's actually one of the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. It's one of the hardest passages to sort out, and here's why. Ruth is why. Because if you read the story of Ruth, you see a very intentional way that the writer makes it abundantly clear that Ruth is a Moabite. Some examples, Ruth 1.22 says, So Naomi returned, and Ruth, the Moabite, keeps saying this, attaches to her name. Her daughter-in-law was with her. Uh, verse 2.2, and Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, 2.5, then Boaz, which is a story we'll hear about in a second, said, Who is this young woman? And the servant answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back from Naomi from the country of Moab. Ruth 2.21, and Ruth, the Moabite, said. It goes on and on and on several, several more times in chapter 4. Ruth, the Moabite. Ruth, the Moabite. It would seem that the writers are trying to tell us something very specific here about this woman. This girl is of a race of people that will never, ever be accepted by God, according to the scriptures. So when Ruth says to Naomi, I will go where you go. Your God will be my God. Naomi, who's Jewish, who knows this, she's trying to stop her. And she says, go back to Moab, because in her mind, even though she loves Ruth so much, she's thinking, you can't go where I'm going, and my God won't accept you. But Ruth insists. So she goes with Naomi. She goes where Naomi goes. And we're going to kind of cliff notes through some of this. Uh, this is going to be a fun one someday to do a whole series on, like four weeks on, because I'm excited about it. But today we're going to just give the basic gist of the story. Naomi and Ruth, uh, they go to Bethlehem. And it's 
kind of causes this stir because uh, Naomi's from Bethlehem, and so everybody sees her. Bethlehem's a very small town, just so you guys know. There's not a lot of people that were in Bethlehem, especially in that day. And so they, they recognize Naomi, even though it had been years, and they say, is this Naomi? And this is what she says. This, this is crazy. Naomi, the, the Israel says to her, aren't you Naomi? She says, don't call me Naomi. Now watch this, okay? The name Naomi means pleasant. But when they start calling her by her name, she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Don't call me pleasant, call me bitter. She then says that when I left this place, I was full. I had it all. But when I'm coming back to you now, I'm returning to you empty. In other words, life has beaten me down. It has taken my joy. It did not go the way that I thought that it would go. It did not go the way that I had planned on it going. But God, he, he takes bitter Naomi and he does something amazing. He, uh, he shows her clear as possible, Naomi, I'm not finished with you yet. I'm not finished with you yet. He shows Naomi, Naomi, I take the broken pieces and I use them to write the best stories the stories of redemption. And I have you in my hand, Naomi. And I have Ruth in my hand too, Naomi. And your story is not over. And her story is not over. It is only just beginning. And here today, I just wanted to encourage you, no matter what you came in here with today, no matter what you screwed up yesterday, no matter what, you, what fell apart in your world on Tuesday, even if you barely limped into this place because you are so angry at God, about the way that your life is going, just like Naomi was. I want to encourage you this morning that your story is not over. It is not over. That God is not threatened by your anger, even if it's directed toward him. He wasn't threatened by Naomi's either. He's not mad about it. He's moved by it. And he wants to wrap his loving arms of kased, of steadfast love around you because he truly is like a mother swan who would pluck out his own flat feathers and line the nest so that you can be comfortable. He truly is one who will give up his own comfort so that you can rest in his, abound, in his steadfast, abounding love. That's, a, that's what we're about to see him do in the life of Naomi and Ruth, and that's exactly what he wants to do for you in your life. So there's this guy named Boaz. And Boaz, by the way, is the son of Rahab, the prostitute that, uh, um, that, that harbored, that, that housed the uh, Israelite spies who were looking for the promised land in the promised land. So you, as you can tell, like, this story, this, this narrative of this family is just laced with grace. Just totally, just like broken people who God just uses in amazing ways. And so Boaz, he has this field. And just, there's a lot to this, but we're going to kind of just fly through it. Ruth goes to this field to glean and gather food. Okay? And when, when Boaz sees this girl, Ruth, he, she catches his attention. And he asks the servant, one of his servants, he says, who is she? Who is this lady? Who is this girl? And the servant responds, we read it earlier, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She is a foreigner. But we're letting her glean food for Naomi because Naomi is a local. So we let her glean and we let her gather now, again, it's clear that, uh, that Ruth caught Boaz's eye because he, he goes to the field and he actually tells her, he says, Ruth, keep gleaning here. It actually, he, he actually shows a lot of compassion and, he, and, he, and, he, and it actually shows kind of an idea of what the world was like there. He said, if you glean anywhere else, you could get hurt. 
You need to keep gleaning here. You're a Moabite. So Ruth, she goes home and she tells Naomi about what happened. And Naomi's like, yes, yes, please keep gleaning there. You'd get assaulted anywhere else. It's very telling. In any other field, you would get assaulted. Oh, and by the way, Naomi tells her, Boaz happens to be on your short list of kinsmen redeemers. Now, the best way for you to understand this word kinsman redeemer is to think of the word kin. Okay, today if we say next of kin, we're talking about a person's closest living relative, right? Okay, so for instance, and I know that this sounds a bit crazy today because this is, the culture is very different, but this is the way things were done in that culture. If a man dies and he's married, but he does not have any kids yet with that wife, that man's brother, or if there's not a brother, then his cousin, whoever the closest living relative was, would then be under a moral obligation, and in some instances a legal obligation, to marry that man's widow in order to give him, the person who's dead now, an heir. So they would perpetuate the dead, is what they would call it. They would say, we're going to carry on your family line on behalf of your brother, or on behalf of whoever uh, died. died. Now, I know that sounds crazy, but that's the way that it worked, and there's, there was a reason for it in that time. And this is very important, because it's important to understand why they had the rules that they had. The word widow, okay? The word widow in Hebrew is the, is, is the word almon. Almon. It actually comes from the concept of something being concealed or being hidden or even being silenced. So what it carries with it is the idea not just of a person being alone, which it does, it's that too, but not just of a person being alone, but also of a person being erased or not like destroyed a race or killed a race, but like forgotten a race. Because if there's a widow and she hadn't had any children yet, that family line ends there with you. There's no passing the mantle. There are no future generations. And in that culture, that was what mattered, passing on to the next generation. That was the main thing. So the kinsman redeemer would then step in and would make sure that the widow and the husband that she had lost are not erased from history. So they would have a child, and then that child would actually continue the family line of the first husband. The kinsman redeemer also had the right, if that person had lost land, to, for a bad business deal, debt, whatever it is, the kinsman redeemer could come and could redeem that land for the person that had lost it. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for redeemer is the word ga'al. And this is what it is. I love the way that Christopher Wright puts it in this book, The Mission of God. He says, a, re- a kinsman redeemer is a person who acted as a protector, a defender, an avenger or rescuer for other members of the family, especially in situations of threat, loss, poverty, or injustice. It's also a word that is used in Exodus to describe God and how God rescued Israel from Egypt. It's an amazing, rich concept that just summarizes what God is to Israel. God, you are the one who redeemed them. And of course, the story of Ruth, as we've said already, is the story of redemption. But it really happens in a very strange way. It's very odd what happens here. Naomi basically tells Ruth, he's a kinsman redeemer. This is what you do. Seduce him. So basically, she tells him, crawl into bed with him after he's had plenty to drink. Okay? And then do whatever he tells you to do. Again, it's a loaded situation. It's a lot of sermons. We're doing it all in one. So Ruth does that. She crawls into bed with him, and she asks him to 
redeem her. And ultimately, what she's really doing is she's proposing to him. She's asking him, will you be my kinsman redeemer? Will you marry me and help me not be erased? But the problem is she's actually doing it wrong. And she doesn't have all the right information. So this is what happens. It's actually remarkable what Boaz does. Boaz actually resists her in the bed when she crawls under the covers with him. He resists her, but he does not reject her. And those are two very different things. Very big difference. See, Boaz knows the law, and what she was doing was illegal and immoral. And he knows that if we do this now, it's not going to be legal. But the thing is, from, you can tell from the way that Boaz, like, caught, Ruth caught his eye, she, he actually wanted to redeem Ruth. He actually wanted this. And so this is what he tells her. He says, Ruth, I want to do this. I want to redeem you. But we need to do it the right way. He's like, I want to make you my wife. But the thing is, I'm actually not first in line. Also, it kind of just shows us how he was anticipating this. He'd already done his research to figure out, can I redeem her? Oh, I'm not first. There is another. And he says, if the first redeemer rejects the opportunity to redeem you, then I will redeem you. So another redeemer has dibs. (laughs) He also knew that when a person does get redeemed, according to the law, it has to be done in public. He tells her, don't tell anybody you came here, because honestly, this looks really, really bad. Slip out. But yes, I'm in. Let's do it the right way. Let's do it tomorrow. So the next day, Boaz goes to town. And the other redeemer, and please note this right now, and we're going to get really into this, the, the other redeemer is not named. Okay? He is an unnamed person, an unnamed redeemer. We do not know who he is. He comes by, and Boaz stops him. He sits him down, and Boaz tells him, hey, there's a piece of land. And you're first in line to redeem him. Do you want it? Like, uh, yeah, of course I want the land. You're, you're giving me land? I'll take the land. Give me the land. But watch this. Watch what happens. The man right away says, yes, I will redeem it. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't accept land being handed to them? And then Boaz says this in 4 or 5. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, a Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. In other words, so you can have children in his name, they're not even going to be your kids, they're going to be his. You got to help his family line not get erased. Now, this is a major curveball for our nameless redeemer. Boaz tells him, in order to redeem the field, you must also redeem Ruth, which would also mean marrying Ruth, which means having children with Ruth because there were no children from her first husband and the family line's about to expire if you do not do something right away. Oh, and by the way, those children are going to be Moabites because Ruth is a Moabite, meaning your family line will now have Moabites in it. And oh, by the way, remember what Deuteronomy 23 says, no descendant of a Moabite will ever be accepted by God ever. And do you know what the Redeemer says? Bring it on! No! He says, I cannot redeem it, lest I impair my own inheritance. He says, this is a bad investment. He says, this would destroy my inheritance. He says, it's not worth it. She's not worth it. Two takeaways about this. And the, the first takeaway, give credit where it's due. I heard, I heard Shane Willard do this. I'm really excited for him to come in and do what he's going to do. Um, um, 
Shane's going to talk about the Bible, and he's going to talk about how there's a lot of issues that people have with the Bible, and he's going to help us sort through them so that we can make the Bible more beautiful, not less, especially in a world that's always trying to come at us and trying to show us all the reasons why it's wrong. The Bible's amazing. It's the inspired word of God. And he has a beautiful case for that. It's going to be a great day. But he, he, and I, he said something that I believe some of you need to hear. So I'm going to reframe that for you, first by telling a story from our family, and then I'm going to uh, tell you his point. And then I'm going to tell you a second takeaway, that as I was studying it this week, and I just began studying, it blew, it blew my mind into so many places. It's like, wow. I hope that it blesses you as much as it did me. But the reality is, guys, there is no way that Ruth is the first person or the last person who's ever had somebody tell her that she is not worth it. We were driving home from school on Friday, and this, I cannot believe that this happened because I, it just, it's so perfect, and I didn't plan it at all. And Fiona, same Fiona who put the baby on the bed um, and slept on the floor, sweetest little girl. Just, all she wants to do is love. She's so loving. She's generous. She wants to bless people. And she's, she's trying to think of somebody's name in her class. And she's like, Daddy, what's that boy's name? I'm like, what boy? Who are you talking about? She's like, that boy, he hangs out with this other boy. And then she said, the, she knows the other boy's name. She doesn't know this other, this first, this unnamed boy's name. And she's like, what's his name? He always plays with him. And, 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 and I'm like, baby, why, do you, why are you trying to figure out this boy's name? And, and she's like, and she's devastated. And she said, he said he doesn't want to be my friend. And Don, we're sitting in the car, we're driving, and Don's like, baby, you don't even know his name. And it's not to say that, like, it's, it, it still matters that he doesn't want to do that, and she's so sweet and compassionate, but she's like, like, why, the idea, like, why are we giving all of our energy and our heart and our frustration to somebody that we don't even know their name? What, wh- who are they to us to speak something like that into our lives, to say, I, I don't want to be your friend? But she was so sad because somebody didn't want to be. And and I'm sure in one way or another, we've all experienced something along those lines, especially as a kid. But even, it should teach us something even as an adult, guys. We have to be very careful of who we let speak critically into our lives. Now, please hear me. We do not want to just surround ourselves with yes men and with people who just tell us we're doing everything right when we're doing things the wrong way. We need accountability. We need friends who will actually be friends, who will help us when we fall, who will set us straight when we're going the wrong way. But be leery of the words that cut you down from people who have not earned the right to speak into your life in that way. Words carry an enormous amount of power. An emo- enormous amount of weight. And when people toss around belittling words like it's nothing, like they're hitting a tennis ball back and forth, it gives them, if you give them that space to do that, those words, they have the power of life and death over you. And what can happen is it can lodge into your heart and it can rob you of your purpose in life. Don't read over what happens to Ruth here very, just too quickly because we normally do. By this redeemer not redeeming Ruth, what he was saying is the public shame that I'm about to face, because he's going to get shamed for this, the public shame that I'm about to face for not doing my obligatory duty for my family is worth it, but she's not. The unnamed redeemer rejects Ruth. And in this story, he's a nameless character. And he makes this statement about Ruth. He says, you're not worth it. But who is he? Who is he to Ruth? Who is he to this story? 
But we know he's a guy in a position to redeem who chooses not to redeem because he doesn't think she's worth it. And, but, but I want you to think about this. Like, what if Ruth, at hearing that, thought, you know what? It's true. I'm not worth it. I need to just leave Israel. I need to go back to Moab. I need to give up on this whole thing. Why did I even come here? Be very careful who you let speak critically into your life. Now, there is not an ounce of information in history about this guy besides that. Which brings me to the second takeaway from this little section that's often overlooked relating to this fact that this is a guy that we don't know anything about. There's a very, very important verse that, and there's something literally just, it is hidden in the Hebrew language of this verse, and I want to show it to you. It is in verse 4.1. It says this. Ruth, uh, this is how English translates this verse. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So the Gael, the potential savior of the day, came by. So Boaz says, turn aside, friend. Sit down here now. Now, again, this, this man is the first in line to be a redeemer, and the redeemer has to be a relative, and Boaz is second in line to be a redeemer, which means Boaz was related to this person. Boaz knows this person's name, but we don't get his name. In English, we say that Boaz calls this man friend, but the word friend in Hebrew is actually the word ra'ah. It's used like somewhere between 150 to 200 times in the Old Testament alone. He does not use the word friend here. Instead, he uses a phrase that's only used here and in two other places in the entire Old Testament. What it actually says is this, turn aside, plony Elmoni. <laughs> turn aside, plony Elmoni. It's like, what is this, his name? What is it? Now, we know this. We know that the book of Ruth was written several generations after it actually happened because the end of the book is the genealogy of several generations that came after. So the writer already knows the outcome of the conversation he's writing about. And to this day, if you were to look up what is Plony Almoni in Hebrew, you will get the word John Doe. A person without a name. But when it's used in the Bible... It's actually used to intentionally conceal information. The two other times that the phrase is used is used in military purposes. One of them is 1 Samuel 21.2. When King David, he's talking to Ahimelech the priest, and, the, the pre, and he's telling him about this mission. And David's like, we're on a mission, but I've been charged by the king to not tell you where I'm going and what I'm doing, so we're going to such and such a place. We're going to Poloni Elmoni. Poloni Elmoni. Such and such a place. A place that I know where we're going, but I'm not telling you where we're going. He does not disclose the location on purpose. He knows the location. He knows it's a specific place. I'm not telling you what that place is. That's Plony Almoni. The writer is doing something very, very specific here in, in Ruth. Because this is not just a nameless redeemer who says that Ruth is not worth it. He is that, but he's actually more than that. The word almoni comes from the word almon, the word for widow, which you learned a couple minutes ago. But it's not saying that the nameless redeemer was a widow. It's saying that he was erased. He, his name was concealed. It was left out on purpose. 
by not doing justice because it would have cost him too much. By not doing the risky thing, even though it was the right thing, he could have been a he had a chance to be part of something so amazing. He could have been a chance of history, which we're going to read about in a minute. And today, he's known as a John Doe who rejected Ruth. He's the John Doe that rejected Ruth and the chance to do justice by his side because it seemed like a bad investment. Guys, the people who never take risks on the things that, by all the world's standards, seem like a bad investment, their names are never recorded in the history books. Never. Whatever it is in this place today that God has called you to do, it's going to require something of you. Somewhere along the line, it's going to get uncomfortable. That doesn't necessarily seem like a good investment all the time, but you know what? If you don't step out in it, you're just going to remain the same, and it won't make any difference on anybody's lives. I want to encourage you this morning that no matter how many nameless people have spoken death over your destiny. There's only one voice that's always faithful. It always will be faithful. And God, guys, if he's telling you to do something, go after it with all your heart. Do what he tells you to do. Because if you run from it, you're going to lose. If we fear loss so much that we let it dictate our decisions, we're going to end up losing. If we fear things not being as comfortable as this beautiful, miraculous life that we have right now, and it causes us to hold back from the things that God put on our heart to do, we will kill our destiny thinking that we're protecting our future. Just killing it. Don't do that. So this Redeemer rejects her, but Boaz marries her. He takes her as his wife. He marries a Moabite. And Boaz and Ruth, they have a son. And they name him Obed. And Obed has a son, and they name him Jesse. And Jesse has a son, and they name him David. And anybody who knows anything about the line of David and about, knows that from that time, every prophecy that came after David about the coming Messiah all said that the Messiah, they insisted he would come from the family line of David. And sure enough, you open your New Testament to Matthew chapter 1 and you get the genealogy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It all begins with the genealogy. The one who would ultimately redeem Israel, Jesus. And whose name is on there? You see King David's name on there and oh, what do you know? You see Ruth's name on there too. Normally in genealogies, you don't even put women's name on genealogies, at least back in that day, because to them all that mattered was the father. There's a couple women on there that made it because the stories were just that important. Ruth's name was specifically written because, quite frankly, it is the demonstration of the kind of kingdom that this God was coming to usher in. One where a Moabite gives us the Messiah. But I thought no Moabite would ever be accepted by God forever, period. From any generation, period. All right, listen, listen to me, church, and please give me grace as I navigate this. Because I, I, I know that this is touchy. 
The Bible is the word of God. This is the word of God. This is the inspired word of God. This book is true through and through. 100% of it is true, okay? But you have to understand how to read it before you start using pieces of it as a way to judge other people, especially on terms of who's in, who's out, what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong. Jesus died for the people that Moses said weren't welcome. Jesus was a descendant of the people whom Moses said no descendant of would ever be welcome. And if you and I, if we are not careful, then with the best of intentions, trying our very best to be Christians and to follow Jesus and to follow the Bible, we can use the words in this book as weapons to yield against people who need this book the most. The people who need us the most. The people who need the experiences, uh, to experience the love of Jesus and the love of God the most. And quite frankly, the love of God is very different than a few angry words that Moses wrote in a raging moment that seemed that he tries to paint God as in that moment. Reading something that Moses wrote when he was angry in Deuteronomy and using that as a response for how we can apply it to other people's lives now would be like reading Hosea 1, like we read last week, and when God's angry and just saying God's always angry, even though by Hosea 3, you get the most beautiful picture of the grace of God in the entire Old Testament. You cannot define people through lenses like that. It does not work. The image that the Old Testament gives us of God, the Old Testament, is kased. He is abounding in steadfast love. We have to understand how to read the Bible. It is not a static book. Shane's going to do a thing on this. It is not a static book. If the book were static, then none of us would ever shave. We would all be miserable because we couldn't make bacon. And when we eat our steaks, it would be dry and disgusting because it'd all be well done. Gross. It's not static. It's not always God said it, I believe it, that settles it. There are times when God does say it and it does settle it. But you have to know how to read it. You have to know the context of what you're reading before you yield it against other people. The Bible, what it is, is a wrestling of wills and of human hearts who are trying to figure out how do we handle it when our friends are getting killed by this oppressive army? How do we handle it when our wives are being taken from us and are being bound into slavery and are being raped and are being murdered? What do we do with this? How do we handle it when somebody takes our children away from us? It's a wrestling of what to do with the people who God says he loves and who God says, I will stand by your side. I will put my hand on you. I will even marry you, Israel. I will guide you, and yet you just keep betraying him and betraying him and betraying him. What do you do with that? It's God looking at all these humans and all the messes that we've made of our lives and the enemies that we've made when we should not have and the mistakes that we've made when we should not have, some of which are beyond our imaginations. We can't even imagine what people have done. And it's God trying to figure out, okay, what life can I give to this? How can I inspire this and add life to this to draw these people closer to me and closer to the life that I have for them? How can I turn this into something that helps them create a world that I dream of for them? And personally, I, I just I think that it's very telling that God would work around a law that was written out of anger in order to perpetuate the line of David and to ultimately give us Jesus. Because 
as the New Testament makes it abundantly clear, in Christ there is no male and female, there is no Jew or Gentile, no Moabite, Ammonite, Israelite, Detroit dweller, suburb dweller, wherever you live. The Moabites can be Christians just like the Jews can be Christians and just like the Christians can be Christians. Our identity is not found in who we once were. Our identity is not found in who someone else says that we are or where we came from. It is found in who Jesus Christ is. And who Jesus is, is Lord. He's God. The God who loved the whole world so much that he sent his son to die for the whole world. For your sins, for my sins. So that we could live in eternity and in heaven with him someday. And so that we could be a part of bringing what's in heaven to earth right now. Bring it here now. And Jesus, he... He breaks through the most impossible situations to create the most beautiful stories. Naomi, you may think that you're empty now, but I'm going to fill you. Moses, you may think I will never accept a Moabite, but I'm actually going to save the whole world through one. This story shows us that God, he is not limited by the words that we say in our anger to try to limit him. He's no respecter of persons, absolutely not. And that his love always always is bigger and always is better than we in our human understanding could ever come up with. One of the very last things that we get in this book, Naomi's talking to some women and they say this to Naomi. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, without a Gael. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, Ruth, is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. The story of Ruth is the story of Naomi, of a woman who lost everything, but who had somebody who was willing to stay by her side, who was willing to go to the hard places just to stay by her side, who was willing to go to a place she was hated, even outcasts just to stay by her side. But ultimately, church, the story of Ruth is the story of a God who redeems his people, who himself rises up on behalf of the oppressed and the marginalized, who rules in an upside-down kingdom where the first will be last and the last will be first, and whoever loses his life will gain it, where the widow will be remembered forever, but the redeemer who denied justice is erased, where a Moabite's name is listed in the genealogy of the Savior of the world, and where God is kased, abounding in steadfast love, like a mother swan who plucks out her own feathers and lines the nest so that her young may rest in comfort.